So as over the last few weeks, we've been reminding ourselves of the way in which God is working in our midst. And one of the things that's been kind of interesting for me over the last six and a half years since living in the city of Sunbury that I don't even think other communities in our valley deal with is that whenever it snows, people get a little feisty and a little testy. Because if you've ever driven around town and think about uh, when it snows, where in the world do we put the snow? Where in the world do we park? Where, like, how do we get down some of these streets that, like, honestly, going down 11th Street, I get freaked out driving past a truck on a normal day. Now there's, like, these snow banks coming out in the middle, and it's just crazy to think about. And it's interesting, over my six and a half years being here, just recognizing that the moment it snows, we start to see the true nature of people come out. Because people tend to be a little bit selfish. They tend to dig out their spot and they got to put a chair in it to, to guard it because no one else can get it. And we start to mark our territories, if you will. And yet this week, I saw many of us in this congregation respond differently. I know of a couple of different situations in which people had snow blowers or they just grabbed a shovel and just didn't think about your own spot, didn't think about your own house, but began to think about the entire neighborhood and rallying the neighborhood together in order to help others clear out. I mean, even in our own neighborhood, I saw some of, some of you actually step up to, to help six or seven other neighbors just clear out. And you could see the, exhaust, the exhaustion on people's faces in, in just seeing you walk up and beginning to help others and the joy that happened. And it's interesting, we've been talking a lot about the reality that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a new identity. And one of those identities that we are given is that because King Jesus came to serve us, we are now called to serve others. And I couldn't help but to think that there were neighborhoods in this community that saw the act of service when everybody else wanted to think only for themselves. And I couldn't help but think that there were neighborhoods in this community that began to see the gospel displayed in a different light when so many just think about themselves and want to be selfish in those moments. I was just overjoyed just thinking about the many people that we were able to help as a church, able to bless, and able to hopefully begin to turn the tide in our neighborhoods to, to begin to think about other people and not just what we desire. And so I'm, I'm proud of you for that. I'm proud of this church that we are beginning to think beyond ourselves and thinking about how we might bless other people. And so I just want to take a moment just to praise God for that and, and just uh, continue to ask that he might grow us to be a people that would serve others. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of massive amounts of snow, in the midst of exhaustion from shoveling and snow piling and, and snow blowing, Lord, that there were many people in this room who denied themselves to help others. Father, what a beautiful picture of the Gospel. What a beautiful picture of what we celebrate at Christmas that Jesus, You denied Yourself 
took on human flesh to serve us. And so, Father, I'm thankful for the men and women who served others this week. And I pray that you would make us a people that would serve others. Make us a people known for our love and service to this valley, we pray. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth foretold. So before it even happens, we're going to look at that story. And then this Thursday, we're going to look at the actual birth story of Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about this story this morning, I was reminded of a story in my own life. How many of you have ever felt powerless? You reached a situation, you knew you had to do something, you just didn't know what to do, you you just felt overwhelmed by the options in front of you, you felt overwhelmed by having to make a decision, and you knew that no matter what you did, It just seemed like it wouldn't be the right choice. You felt incredibly powerless to help. Ten years ago, Alicia and I uh, had the opportunity to lead college students to Ghana, Africa. Ghana's in the western part of Africa, and she had been there before. And so the organization we worked with asked her and, and myself and two other adults, hey, can you lead a trip there for four weeks? And so we were excited. We casted a vision to college students. We uh, taught them how to raise financial support. We did some interviews to ensure that they should go. Uh, and then we trained them. And I still remember that that mid-May morning, we walked to the tram, and then we took the tram to the airport, and we hopped on a plane to Accra, Ghana. Most of us had never been to Africa, and so you can just imagine uh, 30-some people, most who've never been to Africa, our faces were just glued to the windows of the vans as we drove around, just taking in the scenes. And a couple of days later, we hopped on this bus, like really kind of squeezed in tight. You know, most of the coach buses that you see, there's two seats on each side. This had three. Most of them, you kind of stretch your legs out. This one, your legs are in your chest. And so, but we're excited because this is Africa. Never been here. And so we hop on that bus and we take the 13-hour drive to the north. And when you think about Timbuktu, that was this place out in the middle of nowhere. And we reach the city and we get all set up in our, uh, where we're staying and then we begin to teach the students how to share the gospel. And we teach the students more about God's word and then we begin to release students into the community. Because by God's grace, over the next three weeks, we wanted to identify men and women, college students, that we might be able to start a new ministry off of and then release to them. And so we're incredibly excited. We're, we're hopeful for what God's going to do. And then one day, a student comes to us and says, I'm not feeling well. Okay, well, why don't you just stay back today? And we're going to go out. You just stay back. You, you recover and just kind of let us know how you're feeling. The next day, another student comes. I'm not feeling well either. 
Well, why don't you stay back as well? And another student, and another student, and another student, and another student, and another student. And by the end of our time, 23 out of the 36 people on this trip ended up at the doctors or at the hospital for one reason or another. And, and I'm not sure how you would feel in that moment, but we felt incredibly powerless. We didn't have a clue what to do. And then on top of that, we had a leader who decided to kind of go rogue. He took at least a quarter of the money that was raised among all of us and began to spend it in whatever way he desired. He began to take the students he was meeting with and, and take them to nice restaurants. I mean, this is still Africa, so nice is relative, but he took them to nice restaurants and he was spending money lavishly. And in that moment, the only way that we could figure out how to handle this powerless situation was in two ways. One was to just kind of go numb and play a bunch of games to get our minds off of the situation. And the second was the moment our feet landed on American soil was to tell our leaders everything that happened and how there should be justice on this leader. And again, I wonder... If you were in a situation like that, how you would respond. If you were in a situation where you just felt powerless, you, you didn't know where to turn, you didn't know what to do, you didn't, you didn't know the next step to take, how you would respond in that moment. Because the way in which you respond in that moment shows what you're putting your hope in. The way I responded in that moment showed where my hope lied. That's actually what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see another situation for all intents and purposes feels incredibly powerless. In some ways, might even feel hopeless. And yet, in the midst of that, God shows up. In the midst of that, we see the story of Jesus' birth being foretold, and we see Mary begin to trust and put her trust in God when everything seems crazy, everything seems out of control, and she begins to just say, I am going to trust in God. You see, that's actually what we learned that first Christmas. What we learned that first Christmas is that it actually proves that the presence of God coming into the world through Jesus Christ actually proves that God has power for the powerless. You ever thought about that? That in the midst of a world not sure what to do in the midst of a world that is hurting and broken, God enters in and He actually shows us His enormous power. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so, with that, would you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? We believe that this is God's Word. And we want to honor Him by just standing as we read. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am. And the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So Luke is writing, if you were to look at the very beginning of the book of Luke, we see that he is writing to tell us the story of Jesus. He's heard accounts before, and he wants to ensure that we have the correct account of Jesus. And so then Luke begins with the the story surrounding John the Baptist. And what we know of that story, according to Luke, is that John's parents had no kids, and his mom was pretty old. And an angel named Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he says, you're going to have a son. And now that same angel Gabriel comes to Mary and begins to tell Mary that you will conceive and you will have a son. And it's not just any son, it's going to be the king of the world. Not quite the kind of news that single ladies who, who have no boyfriend or, or who have no husband or who have no significant, not exactly the kind of news that a woman would want, right? And yet that's exactly what God does. And He chooses Mary. And then we see in this story that He chooses Mary to be the bearer of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, we see hope. We see the place of power that I think is going to be incredibly monumental for us today. Yesterday I was on the phone with uh, a relative of mine and, and he made a comment that I think is kind of the sentiment that all of us have. And the comment he made was that hopefully 2021 will be better. 
It's interesting. We, we kind of have this catchphrase, well, it's 2020. Anything bad that happens, well, it's 2020. And the reality is, church, the reality is, is that we have to be prepared that the moment that we change our calendars from 2020 to 2021, there's going to be no magic potion to change our world. And so instead, what we need to do is we need to prepare our hearts now for 2021, and we need to look at the place of power. We need to identify that place so that we might rest and that we might live out of that power rather than ourselves. That's what we're going to see as we dive into this passage. In order to see that, we're going to look at three truths this morning. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first truth that we're going to see is we're going to see the powerless. This story is a story of powerlessness. And we've all kind of felt that this year, right? With COVID, with Black Lives Matter, with the elections. Again, each week we still don't know what's going to happen, right? We just feel incredibly powerless. And yet the reality is that we are not the only ones who ever have felt this powerlessness in our lives. Because if you just go back to the first part of your Bible, you will read that God has promised His people, the Israelites, to have this land where they will worship Him forever. And instead of worshiping Him, they rebel against Him. And so through a series of of nations, God brings these nations in to destroy His people and lead them out of the promised land. And as the Old Testament closes, we begin to see that God has allowed some of His people back into the land to rebuild the temple of God. And yet we read in Haggai that the people mourn and weep because they realize that the new house of God is not like the old house of God. And they realize that God's Spirit did not return. And so we're left at the end of the Old Testament with kind of a few different expectations. We read in the book of Malachi that there's this expectation of, of somebody coming and preparing the way for a Messiah kind of king. And, and we read in the book of Ezekiel of God saying that there will be a day in which He will pour forth His Spirit upon dry bones and He will gather these bones together and He will put people back together and He will rise and raise up His nation, His people once more. And yet for 400 years, the people of God hear nothing from God. You want to talk about hopelessness. They are regularly, they're used to regularly hearing and seeing visions from God. And for 400 years, they see and hear nothing. And yet there's this flicker of hope that perhaps now is the moment that this Messiah King, the one to rescue, will be coming soon. And they've got this flicker of hope that perhaps now is the time that God is going to come in and He will remove the ruthless Romans from, from ruling over them and He will establish His King and He will establish the kingdom and he will gather his people back together so that they might worship him. 
Now, if you think about the kind of Messiah they might be looking for, the kind of king that they might be looking for, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a prominent king that, that comes from a lot of wealth, uh, maybe a strong king, maybe a good-looking king, maybe somebody like me, right? You know, just somebody that they can all look to. And yet, we see in this story that, it, that none of that happens. Look with me at verse 26. We see that the angel Gabriel comes in the sixth month. This is the sixth month of, of uh, John the Baptist. He, he is still in the womb of Elizabeth. And he comes, and he comes to a city in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a northern portion of the nation of Israel, and the people that lived in Galilee were typically viewed as half-breeds. They weren't pure Israelites pure people of God. Instead, they had intermarried with the other nations. And so God is going to people who are despised. And then notice Gabriel doesn't just go to a city of Galilee. He goes to a city named Nazareth. Again, if you're, if you're thinking, let, let's just imagine for a moment that we are trying to fight a massive terrorist and you have the ability to choose anybody in the world. Where are you going to look? Maybe you're going to look at Hollywood or maybe you're going to go to Silicon Valley or, or maybe you're going to go to Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or maybe you're going to go to Texas because everybody's got guns there, right? You know, maybe you're going to go one of these places. Yet they say, no, 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 go to Nazareth. It's like God coming today and saying, no, 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 no. The Savior of the world will be born in Centralia. <laughs> you and I are like, what in the world? But think about it. Nazareth was a small community in a despised region. In fact, in John chapter 1, when Philip finds Jesus, he goes, he goes and tells his brother Nathaniel, and he says, hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel's like, whoa, 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 time out. What good can come out of Nazareth? It's like, what good comes out of Shemokin, right? It's what we typically think. That's exactly where God sends Gabriel. It's to this community, this small blob on the map. And not only that, but do you remember where Jesus is born? He's not born in Nazareth. He's actually born in Bethlehem. You see, what, what we know uh, going forward is that Caesar Augustus calls for a census, and as he calls for a census, all the people have to go back to their original, their family line, the, the home where they're from. And so for me, I'd have to fly all the way back to California, and for them, they had to go back to the house where J Joseph was from. And they had, they had to travel to Bethlehem, an even smaller, minuscule, obscure town. Except for one thing. Do you remember? If you look back at the book of 2 Samuel, you'll see the people of God. They have this king. 
They've longed to be like the nations, and so they wanted a king like the nations. And as they have this king, he rebels against God. And as he does, God comes and says, I'm going to wipe him out, and I'm going to establish a new king to rule the people. And so he tells Samuel, go and find this new king. Go to Bethlehem. As he goes to Bethlehem, he goes to the house of Jesse. And even in this story, it's just kind of crazy how God works because Jesse grabs his first son thinking, okay, he's the oldest, he's the strongest, he's going to be the best fit to be king. And God says, no. Well, do you have another son? So he prays the next son, no. Do you have another son? And he goes and grabs that son and prays him in front and God says, no. And on down the line. And they get to the end and Samuel says, is there... Is there anybody else? Oh, oh, I, I've got one more child. He, he, he is really young, but he's, and he's out with the sheep. I'm not quite sure. And Samuel says, just go get him. And he comes. And God says, that's the one. And that one becomes King David. The one who brings Israel to a place of prominence. The one who brings Israel and restores them and establishes their kingdom. The one who desires to build a house for God. And at the end of his life, God says, no, you're not going to do it. But because you desire to, I will establish your throne forever. You see, church, this is just the way God always operates. He rarely goes after the things and the qualities that the world looks at, but he regularly goes after those who feel incredibly powerless in themselves. You see, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He is ministering for God, and he has this thorn in the flesh, and he keeps praying and asking, God, would you take it away? God says, no. My grace is sufficient for your weakness. All throughout the Bible we see God taking the fools and shaming the wise. God taking the weak and shaming the strong. God taking the ones that the world pushes to the side and actually Him going to them and raising them. I mean, again, the disciples, right? I mean, fishermen. This is just the normal pattern that God uses. This is the way that God works. And so for you and I, what that means is that it doesn't matter how you feel about 2020. It doesn't matter the way your year turned out. What matters is that you serve a God who can intervene and you serve a God who has all power and a God that can actually use you in the mess of life today. You don't have to rest in your own power. You can rest in His, and He can exalt you. He can use you. He can infuse you with His power and begin to do great and mighty things. And we can rest in Him. Then we see this play out even more. Look at verse 27. It says that Gabriel goes to a virgin. Scholars think that Mary would have probably been an early teenager. Again, some of you parents think about your early teenager having a child. And then notice what kind of child. 
He later tells us that this is not going to be just any son. It's going to be the son of the Most High God. Pretty crazy. But verse 28, the angel comes to Mary and notice what he says to her. He calls her favored one. Obscure town, a no-namer of all no-namers, young, the God of the universe knows her ins and outs, and yet sends an angel. I mean, I know there's pretty weird stories out there about seeing angels, but my guess is none of us have actually seen, verifiably seen an angel right before us. And she gets an angel from God right before her. And that angel says, you're a favored one of God. Imagine. It's interesting how she responds because verse 29 says that she's greatly troubled. She's trying to understand. I mean, she's just kind of freaked out like what in the world is happening here? And Gabriel begins to tell her all that will take place. And notice what she says in verse 34. She says, how is this going to be? I am a virgin. And Gabriel says, it's because God will do it. The Holy Spirit will come. And God will do this. You can just imagine. She's thinking like, how? Like, I cannot. There's no way in, in the world that I would be able to do any of this. I feel incredibly powerless. And yet Gabriel just says, God will do it. Church, that should put wind in our sails. That when we trust God, when we follow His leading, when we follow His direction, we can actually know that God will do the work. It's not up to you and I. So when we hit a wall, we can persevere, we can press in rather than retreating because it's ultimately not me doing it, it is God doing it. It is ultimately God at work. And so when life is hard, we don't have to wallow in our misery. But we can, we can run to God. We can run to Christ. We can trust Him knowing that He is powerful. He can turn around any situation. He can move. He can even use the difficult situations you deal with for His glory. It's because of our second point. And that is the powerful. He can do that because He is all-powerful. He can do that because He is omnipotent. Look at verse 30. The angel then says to her, he says, do not be afraid. It's like he knows. I know you're freaking out right now. Do not be afraid. That's interesting. When Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land, God says, don't be afraid. He's telling Mary here, don't be afraid. Then he begins to tell her what's going to happen. He says, you're going to bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. This is language used 
for God's Son. This is language used for God Himself. And He's saying this is not going to be just any baby. This is going to be the King of the universe. Because notice what He says next. He says, And the Lord will give to Him the throne of His Father David, the greatest King that the Israelites had ever known. The One who has promised to have a King forever. The one who the people had to be wrestling. I mean, it had been 600, five, 600 years since they have had a king on the throne. And in the middle of that darkness, God speaks and says, I am raising up a king. And you can just imagine how the Israelites are feeling, right? They're kind of back in their land. And yet the Romans are ruling. They kind of have their temple, and yet they don't get to serve and worship God the way they're, they're wanting, the way they're called to. They, they kind of have a restored relationship with God, and yet there's this distance because God's Spirit is not among them. And you can kind of get a sense that they're wanting to return back to normal. Does that sound familiar to anybody? All year, we keep asking, how are we going to return back to normal? And here it might seem that Jesus, as He sits on the throne of King David, that maybe things will return back to normal. But what we know by the end of the book of Luke, that Jesus did not come to restore normal. He came to bring what is eternal. Because at the end of his life, instead of uh, parading through Jerusalem, knocking out the Romans, and sitting on his throne forever, he actually gives up his life. Instead of seizing his power, he lays it down. Jesus tells us in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and I pick it up Again, And so even in the moment in which Jesus is arrested, even in the moment in which he is whipped and beaten, in which he's strung out on a cross, in which it feels like and it seems as if all of his power is gone, Jesus is saying, I am still in control. I have all power because I laid my life down for this very purpose. And we know that because three days later, he is raised from the dead. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he's not just raised from the dead, but he's raised to the heavenly places where he is seated at the right hand of God to the point that every knee in heaven and on earth and below the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, we are constantly told to run after our own power, to seize our own power when you feel out of control, to do anything you can to grab control once again. And what we see through Jesus Christ is that He actually laid down earthly power because He has all eternal power. And so that first Christmas reminds us that we don't just get a king like David who failed. We get a king of the universe. We get the king who created all. And because He did, he could let go of earthly power because he has eternal power.
I should encourage you and I to take our sights off of what we see going on, to take our sights off of worrying about the ways and the latest government restriction and to lift our sights to know that King Jesus is still in control. He is still ruling and reigning today. And then we see the angel continue to tell Mary how this will happen in verses 35 to 37. He says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and this child will be called holy. This child will be separated and set apart for God forever. I don't know about you, but if, if you're like, whoa, I have not been with anybody. I think you know what I mean. I've not been with anybody. I'm young and I'm pregnant. I'm thinking, you're a wacko. And the angel says, don't believe me. Your cousin who is old, well past the years of childbearing, she's pregnant and has been so for six months. And I love what the angel says in verse 37. All of these areas in which it feels just impossible, it feels powerless. Like, how is this going to happen? Notice what the angel says in verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. Church, do you know that? Do you know? Do you know in the, the pit of your heart that there is nothing impossible with God? I mean, a baby born to a virgin is sign enough that there is nothing impossible with God. It should change the way we think about life. It should change the way we parent. It should change the way we go to work. It should change the way we interact with our neighbors because now we don't have to rest in what we can do, but we've got a God who is in control, who has all power, desiring to have a relationship with you and I. And it's because of that desire, it's because of Christ dying for us, it's because of Christ rising that we can have this relationship with him, that we can actually be empowered to live life. That's what we see at the end here. That's our third point, which is the powerhouse. A powerhouse is the place where power is created and then distributed. We don't create the power, God creates it. But he wants to distribute it through us. He wants to show the world himself through us. And look at what he does in verse 28. Mary's probably freaking out here. And notice what the angel says The Lord is with you. She's terrified, and yet God is with her. Have you ever walked into a dark room by yourself? How do you feel? Scared, right? How about if you walked into a dark room with two people? How about three people? How about 50 people? My guess, at that point, your fear is gone. And what Mary just heard 
from the God of the universe is that he is with her. There is no need to fear. All fear can be cast aside because the one who sees all, the one who knows all, the one who has all is with her. And church, that is the same promise for you and I. Because the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, verse 5, that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. So maybe you've had a rough year and maybe it's not just because of COVID, but maybe it's finances or maybe it's things with family or, or it could be a, a whole slew of things. And yet through all of that, we can know that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, God is with us through it all. It's not our strength that gets us by. It's His strength flowing through us, empowering us, that gets us by. And we should have a response to that. And look at what Mary's response to that is. In verse 38, she simply says, Behold, I'm your servant. Let it be. She has seen the power of God. She has heard the power of God. And now she simply submits to her Savior and says, let it be. And I wonder for you this Christmas, as we go to our parties, as we unwrap our presents, as we have our meals in whatever restricted way we have, as we go about this Christmas season, I wonder if that is your heart. I wonder if through all of that, your hope is not in what you will get this Friday, but your hope is in the power of Jesus displayed that first Christmas. And your response isn't, I want more. Your response isn't, look at me. Your response isn't, let me try to live by my own grit and my own power. But rather, your response is to simply submit and say, Lord, I'm your servant. Whatever you ask, whatever you desire, I'm your servant. Let it be. You see, that first Christmas reminds us that no matter what we are going through, the God of the universe knows, He sees, and He cares so much that He sent His only Son into the world to give us the power to be called children of God, to give us the power to have eternal life and to empower us today to live every day as His servants. And so as you go throughout the week, as you reach that Christmas Eve and that Christmas morning, I want you to remember, I want you to lift your eyes up and to see King Jesus reigning and ruling and to have a heart that says, I am your servant. Let it be. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for just the story of Mary. Could not imagine being in her shoes. Could not imagine what she felt in that moment of seeing this angel and being told that the world is radically going to change because there will be a baby in her womb shortly. And yet, Lord, I love her heart, her desire, her trust in You that just simply said, I'm Your servant. 
let it be. Father, I pray that that would be our heart. I pray that that would be what we desire as a church to just simply be servants of King Jesus. Even when it means taking steps out of our comfort zone. Even when it means pressing on our own desires and laying them down to follow You. I pray that we might be men and women who would serve You fully. We pray in Your Son's name. Amen.